about um, 22 years ago or so, this young white suburban lady came into uh, this, uh, came up to me after the women's services and says, my husband and I have been for here for two months and, and we haven't been able to connect with anybody. This church sucks when it comes to connecting people together <laughs> or something to that effect. Uh, and so we put her in charge of it and, and then she started running the church and here we are. <laughs> no. uh, I'm talking about Sandra Unger. Uh, it's been a remarkable, really interesting journey and uh, this morning we had the honor of, of hearing from her and she'll be uh, having a dialogue afterwards, we'll be having a dialogue with her, her and her friend Dee. Um, I want to tell you that she uh, recently got her doctorate, so now whenever you refer to her, refer to her as Dr. Sandra, she likes that. And um, she has a book called Tribe. And I've read this book and I, I, I rarely throw compliments her way without following it up with a quick insult, because that's kind of the way we do things, but I have to say this is really a good book. Um, and it's about her experience uh, of, of uh, kind of the journey that she's been on. And, and uh, uh, well, she'll share more about that a little bit later on. But you can get that. You can pre-order it. It's not out yet. It's coming out soon. Uh, but uh, you can get that at a uh, pre-order at Amazon or wherever you get your books. Uh, but that's something to check out. Oh, good morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you're tuned in. I am so excited to be here today to continue the conversation that Woodland Hills has been having about working for justice and equity and reconciliation and working against racism, and I'm excited to lend my voice to these important topics. In 2003, my husband, my 10-year-old daughter, and 13-year-old son moved from a safe life in the suburbs to the east side of St. Paul. We didn't have a clear plan, but we wanted to expose both of our kids to more diversity and ourselves, and we wanted in some undefined way to work for social justice. And so my book that Greg mentioned, which is available for pre-order, uh, tells the story of us moving from the suburbs to the city, and that was 17 years ago. And so it just uh, is about our journey, and hopefully it's something that can help other people navigate the kinds of things that are happening right now. It's out in September. It addresses the question of why all our friends look like us. Generally, statistically, that is the case. Today we're going to ask the question of what can happen when we get out of our comfort zones and find friends who do not look just like us, and also we'll talk about why that's very, very important. But first, I want to talk to you about amusement parks in Japan. I promise you it might be relevant. Um, amusement parks in Japan opened up this week, and they told everybody, you're not allowed to scream on the roller coasters, because when you scream, you expel more whatever, potentially virus. And so the advice that they've given their customers is to say, scream inside your heart. <laughs> and we're going to come back to this, so put a bookmark there about screaming inside your heart. I want to tell two stories of our first couple years in the neighborhood to explain why it's important that we have friends who don't look just like us. So we had a whole bunch of teenage boys living around us, and so we put up a basketball hoop in our backyard, and we generally had a yard full of young teenagers, mostly African Americans, playing basketball in our backyard and then coming into our house and eating all of our food. And so we... I was going to the store one day, and I had four of these young teenage boys with me, and because they needed food. And so we went in the store, and I got my cart, and I was pushing my cart up and down the aisles, and I had four teenage boys following single file behind me, rapping about groceries. And I've been warned off trying to imitate rapping because I'm super bad at it, so I'm not going to, I'll spare you that. They're rapping about the Cheerios in my cart and that they wanted Doritos and a variety of other things. And so we're going up and down the aisles with this. I've got these four guys behind me. And they were into it. They weren't just saying the words, man. They were, well, I won't imitate it. Anyway, uh, I got about halfway through the store and I was laughing so hard that I was crying. I felt kind of honored to be rapped about this way. And... A middle-aged white man came running down the aisle and said, Are you okay? Do you need help? Which was deflating. Because when a white woman is being followed by four black teenagers, then she needs to be rescued, right? Because people who look like me don't have friends who look like them. 
And I said to the, it was a store manager, I said, no, these are my friends and they came here with me. And then instead of laughing so hard, I was crying, I was sad through the rest of the store because the message was sent, you guys don't go together, you can't be friends, they're not safe. Second story, when my daughter Hadley was 12 and our neighbor Ansea was 8, we went to Target together just to get some stuff and we were walking up and down the aisles and we ended up in the greeting card aisle and apparently it must have been about a holiday because everybody was in the greeting card aisle. So I have my cart and I'm trying to navigate through all of these people without running over toes. Hadley and Ansea were behind me and I got to the end of the aisle and I turned around to see how they were doing with navigating just in time to see a white woman ram Ansea with her cart and say out loud, get out of my way little black girl. Well, I had seen what was happening. Both of them were navigating together very carefully. Hadley, who's white, didn't get rammed by the cart. Ansea, who's not white, got rammed by the cart. And so I said to the lady, that is just unbelievably racist. And she looked at me surprised and said it wasn't. But here's what happened. She thought that Ansea didn't have anybody with her. She thought it was safe to ram her and say this racist thing to her because there was no adult person who looked like her. She doesn't look like me, so we're not together. And this is a problem. When I go out to eat, my foster daughter is African-American, and when we go out to eat and we walk in the restaurant, she's not included in how many seats we need, right? So if it's just her and I, is that a table for one? No, I thought we'd both eat together. But the assumption is that we do not go together. And these stories make me scream inside my heart over and over and over and over, every day, all the time. My friend Dee's kids, who we're going to hear from in a, in a bit, Dee's going to come up here, her kids were involved in both of these stories. And this is what happens to Dee and her kids and millions of other people who don't look like me on a daily basis. And I want to talk about why does this matter? So the question this morning is, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? I can't hear you. Okay, I'm just going to assume you want the bad news first because that's usually the thing. All right, so I'm going to start with a joke about heaven to talk about bad news. So it's at the end of time and a huge group of Christians arrive at the pearly gates and Peter is there to meet them and he's going to give them a tour of heaven. And these people were from all over the world. This group that came through at this time was mostly from the continents of Asia and Africa. So they're having their tour, and as they walked down a certain hallway and passed a certain door, Peter said, shh, the white people on there are in there, and they think they're the only ones here. Which is kind of funny, but kind of tragic as well. And here's why it's tragic, because I heard a lead uh, in the last couple of weeks on NPR that went something like, next we're going to talk about how Christianity has in many ways contributed to the prevalence of racism. That is not a good sentence. I wasn't able to sit in my car and listen to the story, but this is something I researched for my book. And it's a little bit deflating. A Gallup survey showed that 17% of white evangelicals would object to having a black neighbor. Almost one in five. That's not funny. Do followers of Christ not realize that they may have a black neighbor for eternity? This group, white evangelicals, was the most likely of any group that Gallup surveyed to object to having a black neighbor. And a parallel issue to go along with issues of race and ethnicity is evangelical Christians' views on poverty. Because poverty is far, far more prevalent among black people than white people, um, our attitudes go together with racism and being judgmental of people in poverty. They're in tandem. Over a quarter of black Americans live in poverty and nearly half of black children under the age of six live in poverty. So here's another survey. This was fairly recent. The Washington Post found that 50% of white evangelical Christians blame poverty on a lack of effort on the part of poor people. Half of white evangelical Christians. The majority of atheists who have obviously no faith in God tended to blame poverty on difficult circumstances. 
This is where it becomes really important to understand structural racism, which is what we've been talking about here some in the last several weeks. If you're privileged like me, and you don't see the problem with our systems and how they adversely affect some people more than others, then you are left with no one to blame besides the individuals. Those are literally the only two choices. We blame the individuals or we blame the structures. And once you blame people for the bad situation they're in, I'm here to tell you that you cannot give them compassion. So you can't go up to someone and say, the reason you're suffering is because you have made terrible choices in your life. That's judgment. But I love you, and I'm with you in this struggle. Really? Are you, though? Those two things don't go together. And when I read these statistics, you know what I do? I scream inside my heart. This is not the church that Jesus Christ cast a vision for. This is not the church of the New Testament that doesn't want to live by black people, that judges people who are poor. That is not the church I read about in the New Testament. And a big reason that I scream is my friend Dee. I have a person up close to me, and I've watched this go on for 17 years. Dee taught me about white privilege. She taught me about structural racism. And it's one thing for all of us as a church or us as individuals to say racism is bad, but it's quite another to watch your friend and her children, who you love, be discriminated against in thought and in action. You can't argue about the existence of racism when you see it up close with someone you love. And this is why, one reason why it's really important to have friends who don't look like us. And it seems that the white evangelical church has some work to do as it relates to having love and care and compassion for those who don't look like us and live like us and are suffering in poverty. And toward that end, we as individuals have some work to do in diversifying the lives we lead, the people around us that have influence in how we see the world. So that's the bad news. We have some work to do as a faith community to live up to our calling. We need better statistics. We need better statistics. So, the good news. Greg spoke last week about our task as followers of Christ to be reconcilers of the whole world. We're to work to bring unity and wholeness to every part of creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul tells us explicitly that we, as followers of Christ, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And one piece of good news is that you likely already have this good news spelled out in a book that you own. The Bible. The Bible. All right. So in Galatians, in the Bible, we find Paul giving us some detail about what reconciliation looked like in the early church. Here's what Paul had to say to the Galatian church. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. There was a difference, but not anymore. The work of Christ tore down all the walls. Now, just to be clear, Paul is not saying that there's no difference between people, that we should be colorblind or that everybody's the same. What he's saying is there's unity and equality among people of all kinds, and that's what makes the body of Christ so amazing. Unity and equality among people of all kinds. And in Revelation, we actually see this vision at its full expression in the kingdom of God to come. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robes in white, with palm branches in their hands. So this is what we're heading for. This is what it looks like in the end. We're surrounded by people who don't look like us, who speak different languages, who come from different countries, who have completely different cultures and customs than what we do. We don't get our own room. We're sharing a room with people who are different from us. And this I put forward as good news. It's hard to even explain how much my life changed when I got out of my room, so to speak. It has been the best news of my life. I grew up in a suburb of Detroit, in the north side, that was almost 100% white. 
And I want to show you a snapshot of the diversity in my current neighborhood on the east side of St. Paul. This is the Payne Phelan neighborhood, and it is very diverse. We have a huge group of Hmong people, so an Asian group, and we have a huge group of Hispanic people and African American people and a group of white people and all, all kinds of things. And it was quite a change for my family because most people did not look like us. We took walks, went to the grocery store, and we were surrounded by different languages and people who didn't look like us. And I began to live a life 17 years ago that presented radically, radically different changes and perspectives than I had ever faced. And in the process of facing them, I changed. This is the organic beauty of the kind of relationships I entered into with Dee and others. I didn't go into these relationships with a to-do list. But it just happened that in living life with them and seeing the world through their lens, I began to see everything differently. And it was scary, and it was humbling, and exciting, and intimidating, and confusing, and also, at times, completely hilarious. And I'll tell a couple stories about that. So our next door neighbor, ever since we moved into our house, is now. He's Hmong, and he speaks about 10 words of English, and I speak about uh, two on the upside words of Hmong. And we're very friendly, but our interactions do not go deep because we do not speak the same language. We just smile and pass cookies across the fence. Shortly after we moved in, we went to a friend's wedding, and they had a ton of wedding cake left over. And so they said, hey, take some wedding cake home, and you can feed it to the kids that are always in your backyard. And so we took a, two tiers of a wedding cake, we put it in our car, and we brought this beautiful cake, and we put a card table in the backyard, and set the cake up, and we started feeding the neighbor kids. And so we got rid of the whole first level of the cake, the top level, and then now came out of his house, and I pointed to the big bottom level, and I said, you know, cake? And he said, you know, this is how we communicate. And so I took the knife and I started to cut into it. And it was styrofoam. Do, does anybody know that they, they do this to make your cake bigger? They make some parts out of styrofoam. And I had no idea we had a styrofoam cake. And now I have now who does not speak English and I have a styrofoam cake that he would like a piece of. And how do you say styrofoam in Hmong? I don't know. Maybe there isn't even a word for styrofoam. I didn't know what to do. And then I thought, oh, I have brownies in the house. So I went running in the house, and I got some brownies, and I gave them to now, my neighbor, who's looking at the white cake and looking at the brownies. He was grateful for the brownies, but someday, someday before eternity ends, I want to be able to explain to him about the styrofoam. So that's one thing. Here's the other thing. My husband, when we moved in, was a software engineer, and he worked full-time out of a home office. So some of the neighborhood teens thought it was very suspicious that he never went to work, seemingly, but we seemed to have so much money. And of course, that being relative. So they decided that he must have some sort of secret job, like being a hitman, that required him, I'm, I'm not kidding, that required him to do all his work at night. And it literally happened, I promise, that a few times they went and hid in the bushes outside our house after dark to see if he was leaving, coming and going, involved in some sort of nefarious plot. <clears throat> when we explained the true story of his work to them, they seemed rather disappointed. No hitman in the neighborhood. There's never a dull moment. I mean, the things, the stories, and the stories, and the stories go on and on about the ways we were stretched and grew and laughed and cried. It was amazing. It's still amazing. So that's my neighborhood. But let's look at the whole world. Here's the population of what the whole world looks like today, roughly. So we're not right on the top, if you look like me. We're not, the Caucasians are not, not the big group. So it will be a very diverse group of people that are waving palm branches. And if you are a white Christian, you will be in the minority. And you will have neighbors who look different than you and speak different languages. And if there's a grocery store and a school and whatever there, you're going to be in a crowd of people who look different from you. You will be, I promise. Are you ready for that is the question. And do you see this as good news? The God of creation has given us, as his church, as his people, a mission. And we are surrounded in this diverse world with opportunities to practice this. And it's even in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus 
tells us to pray that God's will would be done and his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. This is reconciling activity for today. This is not, we get to heaven and then we figure out how to deal with this. This is what we're to be doing today. We're to be reconciling with those who are different from us right now. I was in my late 30s before I really understood this and embraced it. I decided I wanted to be part of bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I wish I would have started sooner, but later is better than never. Let's not wait for it to come to us. Let's get out there and bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Before we bring Dee and Greg up, Let's say the Lord's Prayer together and commit today to the work of reconciliation as the body of Christ, to the work of bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 Appreciate that uh, word, Dr. Sandra. Uh, at, at this point, we're going to ask D. Uh, Sandra's friend, D. Hampton, is that what is that last name? Yep. Come and join us, and we're going to have a discussion. And that's Dave, Sandra's <laughs> husband. Wave the crowd, Dave. Hey. Hey. Where's D? Oh, here she is. Here she is. All right. Hey, uh, thanks so much for that message, Sandra. I appreciated it. Um, you, you still have that, that same kind of excitement that you had 22 years ago or however long ago it was when you, when you first came uh, uh, to Woodland Hills. Dee, thank you so much for being a part of this discussion. I really appreciate your willingness to come forward and, and share uh, with this, with all of us. Um, we're in a very odd, strange, and painful time. Uh, on top of COVID, of course, we have the George Floyd murder and all the subsequent developments. Um, how are you guys doing? I mean, in this in this season, how how you handling? You go first. Okay. Uh, well, um, today I'm peaceful. Uh, I struggle every day. I have been for the last month disgusted, angry, and sad. Uh, but I I have decided on a daily basis to take each day and uh, work on just being peaceful for the day. And that has been my focus, is just taking my, my days a day at a time mm -hmm. um, and um, not consume myself with all of those feelings that I have and just try to stay peaceful on a daily basis. Um, well, as you may have heard, I've been screaming inside my heart <laughs> and it's, it's a good phrase, I just love it, but it really does reflect how I feel a lot of the time as I look around and see all of the stuff going on. And it didn't start with George Floyd. I mean, for me, for Dee, this has been a lifetime of having to find peace in the middle of it. For me, this has been 20 years of trying to find peace in the middle of what I now see as just ongoing, horrible, racist stuff happening mm -hmm. to my friends. And so I've been... It's been a struggle, and I go back and forth between crying and being angry, um, which are really kind of two sides of the same coin, yeah. and hoping and praying for change. Do you sense uh, a certain kind of solidarity, I mean, just knowing that there's, seeing other people who are in the same struggle, same, uh, you're not alone. Does that, is that some consolation? <laughs> I mean, just the masses of people that have been involved in this. It's been really remarkable. Okay, well, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, what, what was the, like, your first impressions when you met? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's kind of funny. Uh, I'll definitely go first on this one. <laughs> well, I was, when I, I first m met 
Sandra was, uh, as she said, we were, my front door faced the garage of this house that I had moved into. I just had a house fire, lost everything. Um, my, my mental um, wasn't, um, wasn't very healthy at that time and financially, as you can imagine, losing everything in a house fire and having six children, um, I, I, was, uh, I was struggling mentally, financially, um, and physically I was sick. Actually, I had got laid off. It was a lot of things happening in my life at that time. Yeah. And I remember Sandra, and I watched Sandra and uh, Dave move in. I watched a truck move in, right? within weeks of me moving in. Um, and I saw them move in and, and it became winter. Um, as it warmed up, she began, began to come across and she was speaking to my kids. I was looking out the window and I, I really did not trust that she was coming around or talking to my children. I was telling my kids, don't talk to those people. We don't know them. She was offering them cookies and food. <laughs> and I was like, don't eat her food. But they did eat the food. They Just did, saying. of course. Just you know, saying. especially my, my boys, my, you know, teenage boys. And it, I, um, I didn't trust her at all. And, and I kept thinking she had, there's a, what is her reasoning to want to talk to us? Um, you know, why does she want to come over? She must want something. And, 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 and I kept thinking she was going to be, she's judging me. She sees this single mom over here with these six kids and, and they're hungry all the time. She probably assumes. I kept saying, quit acting like you guys don't eat. And I, I felt um, mainly just distrust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to know Dee's kids before I got to know Dee. So Linnea, Ricky, Wesley, Ansea, Khalil, and Wisdom. And Wisdom was two. Yeah. So I met all the other ones uh, right away and started giving them food. <laughs> I didn't know they were forbidden. They ate the food. So, but then I saw, I looked out and I saw Dee going out to get her mail. And like she said, she wasn't feeling well, so she didn't come out of the house too much. And I just ran like a crazy person. She, I probably, across the alley. Hi! <laughs> I remember. I'm surprised she didn't run up into the house. But uh, I will say to my embarrassment that I, you know, we moved there thinking we were going to work for social justice. And so, like, here's a target. Uh, you know, I was just dumb. And so I'm going up to D, and I'm thinking in my head, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to be so helpful to you. I know I love you so much, and I'm going to be so helpful. I didn't even know one thing. And she was gracious I, all along, I will say. Okay. So the learning curve must have been steep. So tell us, <laughs> what's the dumbest thing that Sandra said oh, or, or did in those early years? Or maybe not so early years. We, we just talked about <laughs> this. And, I, and I actually, I've only just brought it up to her this week. And um, not that I, you know, it wasn't something I just didn't talk to her about. It just, I had the memory of the feeling. Um, we, we, you know, began to work with the youth, um, starting off with the lift. And... Sandra had this great idea that she was going to bring the St. Paul Police Department and have a community meeting with our teens. And I was like, okay. And there was no nothing asked of me or, or you know, my, my kids. Like, do you think this is a good idea? Should we do this? Or how would we well, do this? Well, that's because I know everything. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> just, just so we're clear. And I, but, oh, that you know, was funny. You yeah. know, annoying her at that time, I just... I, I knew it came from a place of genuine, you know, concern, and she wanted, you know, this, you know, th this uh, um, bringing two together to, you know, bring peace or whatever. But um, me at, at having some deep-seated issues with the police and my history, my family's history, my children's history, um, watching uh, so you know, so many incidences where um, there was a lot of police brutality um, and I, I ha did not trust that this was a good idea. It just didn't feel good. It didn't sit on my soul. And, and my kids had already, there's been, had already been times where, where my kids had been pulled over. They had been profiled. They had been um, put, uh, you know, in handcuffs. My teenage son stopped and, and, and frisked and asked for ID. And, and it's happened to my father and my uncles. And there's, I have so much history that sitting with the police just was not something I wanted to do or my kids even wanted to do. Um, and we did it, uh, and it, 
for in my own opinion it was not nothing really came of it other than there was a couple of police officers one seemed genuinely felt good about being there. the other one I think he just kind of somebody told him he had to be there and it just I, I walked away from that situation not really hadn't gained anything um, you know I knew that Sandra wanted something good to come from it and I know she was genuine about it um, but it it was something that I, I kind of said to myself, I wish she would have asked if this is, instead of just saying, this is what I think you guys need, instead of saying that and have a conversation and, and then maybe we could have approached it differently and maybe it talked. I even have uh, some cousins who are police officers and I would have had really had had, uh, would have wanted one of them to come and it just was, it, it was awkward and it was uncomfortable. It was a little scary and uh, my son, I don't think the, the boys got anything out of it other than they're just like still, they didn't really respect the police officers and it was it was a hard thing and I just wish she had a um, that was one thing that she you know she she said and did and and I was just like that was the stupidest thing you could have done you know but I'm kind of proud of that of yeah that. well I mean the, here's the deal officer Bob is our friend when you look like me you know that's we grew up in kindergarten he visits the class and gives us candy and mm -hmm. and so what happened shocked me shortly after we got there we got this 12 passenger van and I would drive these kids all over the neighborhood and so I'm driving down the street and a cop comes by up beside us and I look in my rearview mirror and all of the kids had bent down below the level of the window and I was like what what are you guys doing and they're like there's a cop and I'm like did you commit a felony I mean what is happening and so I, I understood that there was this deep break in things but I, I didn't understand like even the genesis of the policing system was about um, policing for slavery and then policing for Jim Crow so this wasn't just like a, oh we need to learn to all get along right, this right. was a long term deep seated structural issue and I was naive and stupid and D again was very gracious about it but that was not a good I know now so <laughs> it was not a good plan I appreciate you sharing that um, yeah the police force uh, knowing a history here I think is so so vital um, because uh, the history of things determines the meaning of them now so the meaning of the police force it was different for you than it was for, for Sandra and mm -hmm. one of the things that is privileged about being white is that you don't have to bump into necessarily bump into what it's like for other folks and, and other perspectives on it so we just kind of normalize our own perspective sure. and that leads to all sorts of judgment mm -hmm. uh, how you interpret things um, you know would be it can be they can get defensive or or, or, or whatever uh, can you share with us how, how like how has the relationship changed both of you uh, mm -hmm. made you different than you were you want to go who's first you go all right do a thumb wrestling mess yeah. um, I I have learned to be in relationship with people better uh, the relationship that Sandra and I have it took a lot of time it um, it was an instant friendship was no instant love um, it, as I as I mentioned it was a distrust at the beginning and it took a while mm -hmm. for me to say Sandra is my friend it took even longer for me to say that I love her and her family and her and it that that seed that was planted it it blossomed and it grew over time and so did I uh, I didn't think I had anything to learn I believed I was um, you know kind of in a place where my relationships were good I you know I was a you know I was a genuine person I I um, I learned to see things differently I learned to look at people differently and I opened up I was in a box of my own I was also in my comfort zone as well hmm. I did not see that I needed to grow I didn't see that I needed to come out of my box that box was there for a reason because I needed to protect myself my family my feelings and you know when Sandra um, came into my life and her family and uh, other friends at the lift I didn't think they had a place in my life I didn't think it was important for them to be there I didn't think they could add anything to my life I didn't see the value of them being in my life because you know I was raised and and understood that uh, there I should not trust and um, I would be hurt and I was already being judged and so I, I had to spend time unlearning some things and I opened up and I have better relationships with people because of Sandra 
You know, she taught me a lot about conflict resolution. Our relationship taught me a lot about conflict resolution. Our differences, um, you know, taught me a lot. But then I learned also that we had so many differences, but we had so many common things. Mm. There was so much, you know, as a mother, as a daughter, and um, we had a women's group that we, we started off saying, this women's group, we're going to have a Bible study, you know, and then, you know, God does things differently, and Bible study isn't necessarily what you think it is. We began to open up, and we shared our stories, and I was the last one to share my story because I didn't want to be judged and I was I, I had, there was some fear in me letting you know um, women who were different than I was and came from different backgrounds we all were different but I learned so much from their stories and and it, it took a lot for me to to share and then when I did share I, I came out of that box and we grew our friendships grew and my friendship with Sandra grew and her family and then th that love that comes into your heart when you're when you just care about someone so genuinely that everything becomes natural and it just became natural and it took time so now I have relationships um, and I and I uh, t you know I told Sandra I I have a relationship with my father because of Sandra you know, because wow. of what she taught me in beat change and, the, you know, the things that we've learned. I had to really dig deep about conflict resolution and, and forgiveness and seeing people for, for, you know, who they are and not judging and, and allowing my heart to just be open to, to learning and understanding why people. There's a cause and effect for everything. My father wasn't in, in my life growing up, but there was a reason because of that. And um, I didn't, you know, I had to understand that that is a lot of why we are sitting here today. There's a cause and effect to everything. You know, truth matters. It does. And that's how you build relationships. So we were truthful wow. with each other. Me and Sandra have been truthful, you know, and when she s says dumb things or, you know, and I'm sure I've said dumb things. Like we never, we never, talk and me. we talk about it. Yeah. That's great. I remember when we had that women's group and you, uh, you were really reticent to go. So each woman got a whole week to tell their story. And mm -hmm. Dee came in finally on the last week mm -hmm. with like this much written out by hand and just with a shaky voice shared her story. And I honestly think of all the time I've known you that that was the transformation moment mm -hmm. because all of the women leaned into your story and were with you in it and no one judged you. Mm -hmm. And th you, that's just something in the kingdom that we should be doing all the time. It was the best you know? Bible study ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. So for me, everything, all of the things changed about me since I met Dee. Um, on the outside of me, in terms of how I think about the world out here, you know, we all have a web of beliefs, something that we construct for how we make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. And what meeting Dee did was it grabbed one of those center pieces of the web and pulled on it, and it changed the shape of everything. That's a great mm -hmm. metaphor. Yeah, I think wow. so. Um, so that's what happened is how I viewed everything from the police to white privilege to my own family to uh, what I, how I wanted to raise my kids. All of the things changed in terms of how I thought about how I saw situations. And this didn't happen like the day I met her at the mailbox. Right, right. This was over a course of years that I started to see, I would think, I used to see this this way. Mm -hmm. And now I see it totally different and I would surprise myself. And then I think inside me uh, I would look at situations and, and not feel judgment or the need to control and that's a, a thing about privileged people is they want to tell people how to think and how to behave and how they should be responding and really what I learned with Dee was to listen and to let her think what mm -hmm. she thought and then we could get into a good conversation but if you start out right away I've got to fix you that's not right that's not how you do that well then there's no conversation and so I've just really slowed down those thoughts of here's how it should be and learn not just with Dee but with everybody we've, we've got to give space for differences of opinion and for growth and for where we are in life I'm not in charge of the universe. I don't have to fix anybody. Really? That's not my job. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I found that out recently. So I can let people be who they are and love them who, how they are, and yeah. then we all get changed by that. Yeah. It's just a better way than no, trying sure. to fix people. I, I think the, the your, your relationship is so rich uh, because you've had to work for it, uh, and yeah. and you. Yeah. It seems to me that the, the greater the difference. Uh, there's a unique kind of beauty with that. Now, all relationships that are true and genuine are, are beautiful. Yes. But, but when you are able to you know, cross over like that and you just 
getting rich by the other uh, perspective that otherwise you wouldn't wouldn't have. And I wonder if like you read Revelation seven, how we'll all be together, and I bet the experience of that richness is what the kingdom's all about. Yeah, and, and that's why we need to be rehearsing we need it to be now. Playing now. And you know, I wrote about that in my book yeah. uh, about the love part because one of the things I said. you without you knowing. Yeah, well, I, it's me. not going to happen. <laughs> so I wrote about love as one of the things that's really changed me. And you just said the well, you read the book. You did steal it. What I learned from that is that this love Probably. that we have uh, is so special because it was forged in yeah. this huge effort and this starting out the, in division. And I mean, Dee's dad was a Black Panther. She's not trying to be reconciled to the happy white lady across the alley. I mean, this was, <laughs> and so that love means more than, of course I love my kids, of course my mom loves me, but this is something that we just had to lean into and fight for, and that is huge. Yeah. That's, I think, what reconciliation is all about. And you both had to become vulnerable to one another. I mean, that's clear. And I'm sure there's times where you both were afraid and both got hurt. But yet yes. you kept on working at it. It's beautiful. So we've, we've talked a lot about systems uh, because, uh, you know, there's a... From the very start of this country, the, in fact, before the start of this country, uh, the foundation was laid, uh, established by white people for white people, and it works well for white people. And that system, the systems still carry on. Um, but now you're, you're sharing your story of your friendship, Taylor, and I guess the question would be, uh, how does this relate to that? Uh, this is not carrying a protest sign or how you vote or whatever. This is just work that's beautiful that you both got involved in. Do you think that that at all is important to changing the systems or is this something altogether different? Well, I think it's critical because systems are designed by and maintained by people. Yep. And so... I don't want to be naive and thinking, you know, DNI changed and so now the world will, but we, this is hopefully something that has, is really rolling because we started, DNI started the lift uh, 15 years ago and it's a neighborhood organization that works with teens and hundreds of kids have gone through that and so we've planted seeds all along there mm -hmm. of kids who are going to come out into the world and are already coming out into the world and thinking differently. D has six kids who all think differently. I have two kids, uh, who, who think differently, who want to change the world, who won't accept this. And so what you do is you just start, it, start, it becomes a wave, hopefully, of change for the world to plant those seeds in young people and see something different. And really, if the kingdom people could get on board and have better statistics, then I think that that's a huge force for change of systems. So we've just got to keep speaking this truth and living it out. Bearing witness. Okay. I completely agree. The seeds, saying that, you know, planting seeds and understanding how small a mustard seed is. Mm -hmm. But we've been planting seeds, and I feel like a, a community mother. Um, sometimes I think mm -hmm. that you could probably call yourself a community mother too, Sandra. Because I, I, I really truly believe in the, the small seeds that we plant, how much they grow and how important it is. Amen. We know that all the systematic things that are that that plague us with in, in pretty much every system educational and is really big and um, I'm really about education and about real history and, and truth and teaching um, but planting seeds in, in our youth and in our family members and and watching them grow and understanding that it is a process we're, there's no instant gratification here we're not going to change um, you know overnight or our systems aren't going to change overnight but it's important to understand that we need to be planting seeds and it's important that we stay focused on that um, we don't lose sight of it yep preach it Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's calling you in the mystery. <laughs> you, got I mean, you, you got a gift there. Um, what, what do you do? You, uh, what, what do you think? Or do you have any ideas about? Share with us what you think. Like, what can the average white person do uh, to affect the system? And these systems that have just gone—they're self-perpetuating. They go on and on. And on. Um, it's an important, especially important question right now because we're in this. Uh, sea change, it seems like. Yeah. And so, do you have any, any ideas about that, or what would you say? No, I have a lot. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm gravitating right now in um, thinking about wanting to know truth. Um, as I said before, truth matters. Um, our history matters. The cause and effect of everything matters. Um, knowing and wanting truth and, and wanting to take 
something that you learn and share it that's important important but the big thing for me is that lose the fear lose the fear of walking in a room and being the only person that looks like you because I deal with that I have dealt with that my whole life I work in corporate America and sometimes I am the only person of color sometimes the only woman but really sometimes majority of the time I'm the only black person or black woman in the room and it's difficult and I and it's in my life where I've grew up, grown up and majority of my lifetime that's what I have to deal with and I have to face those fears ask questions listen you know it's okay to not know what to say it's okay to not know how to answer a question or what question to ask it is okay drop the fear you know want, want to open up your mind to learn more understand that you need to, you need to be reading and and learning um, if you don't want to read watch there's so many documentaries and and um, so many things you can stream now to to understand what is really truth um, our country was we've been lied to we've um, a lot of our history was erased for many reasons um, systems were set up and for not for everyone um, as Greg mentioned you know it, we have we have a great country but there's so many deep-seated things that have grown that we need to, those, those things have been barriers for many people. And so I think it's important that we remember that you need to st stop being afraid. You know, I have to ask myself sometimes when I'm going into a room, I, I say to myself, okay, are you going to be able to handle this? You know, I've gone to white churches and I've, before I had my afro, I had a big fro and I walk in the room and I was afraid. But I face my fear because I know I'm going to be judged. I know people are going to be staring at me and looking. But you know what? I have something to say, and I want you to. I want you to listen. And some people will. And maybe one person will. I've planted a seed. Mm. I've planted a seed. I, I don't always expect that everyone's going to hear me or see me or understand me. Some people may judge you. Um, but there, you're, when you plant seeds, when you ask questions, when you're silent and you listen, and you don't assume. That is important. It is important. Know, know that you can make just small changes just by um, talking to your family. We have youth that are, they're in need of truth and they want it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, I remember when, <clears throat> shortly after I moved in and we got to know each other a little bit, we started walking to the black church in our neighborhood. Oh. <laughs> I could write a whole book. We have about that's that. a whole book. <laughs> but I we were the only white family there and um, it was really interesting because one of the important things about walking into black spaces or spaces where people don't look like you is not to think, okay, I'm here now I'm in charge. Mm -hmm. And so part of it was just to go there and serve and listen and love and be there. And that's something that we can do that affects a whole lot of people is to start opening up those relationships. I think people can read um, and like Dee said educate yourself. So The New Jim Crow yeah. by Michelle Alexander which is also in a documentary I think 13th um, on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, that's one about the criminal justice system and you could learn about that. You could read A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn that corrects a lot of the things that at least I was taught mm -hmm. in school for you, for you to get a more accurate picture of history and I think we got to we've got to stay tuned. We can't let this moment pass. Right. We've got to realize that it's time for change. H yep, hang, hang on to that. And that that's been uh you know we've been uh, we haven't been here before, but we've been around something like this before numerous times and and initially there's there's a lot of momentum for it. Uh, my concern is that histor historically there's white fatigue. Um, and and because you can opt out, many do opt out. Yep. You know, right after the Civil War, uh, with that, you know, that Reconstruction period, which was incredible, uh, that's a good thing to study up on and learn about, because the advances that were made in, in seven, eight years were remarkable. Uh, but it took, it took occupa occupation. We had the troops down there to maintain order to keep the KKK and others at bay. But that got expensive, and the white people got in the north, got tired, and they finally lacked the political will and said, that's a southern problem, we're going to leave it, and mm -hmm. it set us back to the beginning. So I think it's an absolute crucial point. And thank you, Dee, for pointing that, for like giving uh, white, white folks permission to like 
acknowledging that there's fear there. Because I think a lot of folks, especially when they first start to have eyes open on this, it's like, I don't know what to do. What if I say the wrong thing? Mm -hmm. well, I, I, do I say black or African-American? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's, there's, it's unknown territory. So we say neither. I mean, that's what happens. And that's called yeah. aversive racism, actually. Yeah. Aversive racism is when white people are so afraid of, am I going to do this wrong or what do I say, that they won't start the conversation. Mm -hmm. So that it falls only on black people to point out right. what's going on and to say it. And you didn't you say you had a Zoom meeting right the after day George after, Floyd was murdered? Yeah, so as we know, George Floyd was killed on that Monday Memorial Day. On that Tuesday morning, I had a meeting. Um, and there's about 20 people on that meeting. I'm the only person of color on the meeting. And we started off the meeting. Everyone's, how's your weekend? Oh, it's great. Oh, fine. Huh? And, I'm, and I'm sitting there. I think I was crying in the moment. I just, I, and I was just feeling, I was waiting for someone to say something. I was just sitting there waiting. And I'm like, I know they don't expect me to be the one to say something. You know, um, but I could see some faces. I stayed all, I had my camera off. Actually, my camera was broken on my laptop, which has been really great for this past <laughs> month because Recommendation. I don't, I, I literally have cried in between breaks. Um, and I, and my face, I have not been, you know, I, I put on a, a facade and a face because I have to, you know. Um, so no one said anything. And I was waiting for someone to just say something. And so what I did, I shut down. I shut down that Tuesday. I don't know if I've even come back yet. I, I still am a part of um, meetings. I had to take off time. It was really, very difficult. And I just wanted someone to just say something, to just mention it, just to say, Dee, how are you doing? Or just take a few minutes for us to say, you know, this is, you know, this is something that maybe some people may not have heard because it was on Tuesday, but I know there were some people on that meeting um, because I could tell by the faces and by the indirect conversation. Normally, people would talk to me a little bit more. Nobody talked to me. Mm. I was, I felt so distant from a distant meeting. Like it was, it was, it was such a horrible feeling, and yeah. I. I, I I really shut down at that moment. I don't think I, I, I don't remember anything. It was like a weeks long training and I just remember I, I couldn't even put my input in like I normally do um, because nobody said anything. Man. Nobody said nothing to me. And that's the privilege of Very being hurtful. white. I don't have to talk about it. I have to think about it. It didn't impact me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be entirely unlike, you know, if everybody in the room knew that your father got killed yesterday and they don't mention it. It, mm -hmm. it communicates. It's not worth talking about. I mean, that must have just been really painful. Yeah. And I feel like even being a, a black woman and a black man gets killed, there was other women on there I know who have children. There's other people I know that have family members that could have been their family member. And it, and it, and it bothers me that, uh, that it was, okay, it's a, a black man, so this is a black thing and not a human thing. I felt like people should be talking about this because, you know, your son, your dad, your brother, it, it felt like, why are we separating this? It, this is a human thing that happened. This man died. This mm -hmm. human died. And why, that should have been the conversation. Um, and the distancing from me made me feel like, oh, a black man died, so it's a black thing. I, yeah, and that is just the human way of doing things. You only really relate to someone or care about it if it's mm -hmm. someone who looks like you. I have a poem about that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't write this poem. I don't actually know who wrote it, but this is really sad on, I've sat with this so much, um, thinking about the exact thing. Like, is, is George Floyd's life worth less than my son? Are your son's lives worth less than my son? Mm -hmm. So this is the poem. And when I think about my son when I read this, I can't hardly get through it, so I will try. We're putting up a picture. My son is the one on the right who's white. <laughs> I don't know if it's up there yet, but, <laughs> but the one who looks kind of like me. And this is my son when he, the time, this is when we moved in the neighborhood. So this is Dee's son, Ricky, on the left, and Jamal is in the middle, who's not our son, but he was with us. It's my son we could not. We can't even find a picture of anybody without Jamal in it. Yeah. And then Wesley's the one who's got his head turned. So I was thinking about my son after this happened with George Floyd and I read this poem. If my son went for some Skittles and didn't return, or played in the park and didn't return, or went for a job and didn't return, or sold cigarettes on a corner and didn't return, or went to a party and didn't return, or reached for his license and didn't return, or resisted arrest and didn't return, and with his last dying breath called out my name, I would set the world on fire and let it all burn. And I'm not advocating setting the world on fire, but 
for me now, which is never how it was in my life when I look at Ricky and Wesley, when I look at Dee and all of Dee's kids, and realize that people don't see their lives as worthwhile as my son or as my life. And you can't learn that from a distance. You have to know someone. I have to insert Ricky's face and Wesley's face and Khalil's face and into this and recognize the pain. Mm-hmm. It's not a black problem. It's a human problem. And if we don't think that when we look at George Floyd's face that what happened to him is just as important as if it happened to my son, then we have a problem. Amen. Until the killing of black men, black mother sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mother sons. We who believe cannot rest. And that's Ella Baker. And I, on the day after George Floyd died, I wrote that on a poster and I went, of course at this time the news is just catching on. And I went that morning and I stood there with the sign and people wanted to talk to me. I just wanted to hold my sign and bring some flowers. At that point it was like six people had bought flowers. And I just wanted to stand there because I, I watched the video like all of us and I saw my my sons. Um, I worry about, I've always worried about my sons. I still worry about my sons. I worry about my grandbabies. I have to tell them about this world that we live in that is not going to, it's not as fair to them as others. I never had to have the talk with my son or daughter that you've had to have with your kids around how to behave around the police. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when um, I first saw that George Floyd video, um, yeah, I've, I've got two black grandsons, and uh, I get just—it's so that's the first thing I associate with, mm-hmm. and the other disdain for the, on the part of of the officer, the, the, just disregard for the life. It's just—it's—I it, can do what I want. And it was so I couldn't fit. I couldn't watch it at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but that empathy, you know, that—that that is, I think, the crucial thing. And there's all sorts of studies that show this that we. Are, it's not, this isn't just a white thing, though it means something different because it's a white thing here in America, but, but uh, uh, we always empathize with folks that are more, most like us. Yes. And that's even got some biological roots, which just means that we've got to be willing to do the work, the mental work of it is to intentionally identify, to realize that this won't, this won't be your first reflex, but to imagine that that is your son and that is your brother, that is your father. Because, um, you know, when, when, when that happens, when that connection happens, uh, so many of the issues that people start throwing up uh, right away become not only irrelevant, but infuriating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, well, he shouldn't have been passing a fake $20 bill. Well, he shouldn't have been high on whatever. Well, he should have been, you know, he had a, he had a record. And if Who cares? To the degree that you're identified here, it's like, it, why are you talking about that? Mm-hmm. This is yeah. a human life here. And all that is just, but yeah, it, it, it becomes like, it can become distracting from the, the, the reality that a human life was just taken here. Yeah. Uh, that's powerful stuff, you guys. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Sandra, is there anything that you have regretted uh, since you decided to uproot and move into the city? Uh, I for the oh I used to have a whatever I used to have an attached garage no there's nothing that I that I regret ever I uh, I feel more I feel like I've been changed I feel more in solidarity with humanity as opposed to just my people who look like me humanity my kids I don't think they would be the same at all if they had not gone and experienced uh, both they would see their Hadley came home and said so and so's mom is selling drugs out of the living room and and they've said things like so and so doesn't have a you know a bed or a, or a sheets on their bed or those kind of things but they also went out into the, into you know these families and realized these are these people are fun and joyful and even in the midst of not having maybe a whole ton of money there's just this amazing spirit of gratefulness and generosity mm-hmm. my I mean the amazing thing these kids back when things were harder they would you know do a little job and get paid fifty bucks and then they'd give D 20 toward the rent. And I was like, my kids don't give us money. There was just amazing generosity. So my kids have benefited in seeing just this holistic view of people. And they have been changed and they say they've been changed. And another thing that happened that would never have happened is a young woman, um, young girl who was 10 when she started going to the lift 
At 13, she found herself homeless, and through a whole series of events, she joined our family. And so Rakia has now been with our family for 10 years. She's going to graduate from college next spring, and that's another thing that's changed all of us, that's changed my kids, that's changed my husband and me, is to have someone in our home who's been through more crap in 13 year, her first 13 years of life than I have in my whole life. And you can't pay for that. It's just amazing to learn that way. You, were, you felt called, you know, Dave, to, to move into the city, immerse yourself there. Um, for those who aren't called for that, uh, who are living in suburbs, uh, and I, I know you don't think that everyone's called to... to right. To, to it would be crowded if everybody... So, so what can someone, short of this immersion thing, uh, do to uh, begin to have more diverse experience in their life and begin to... Well, I think you have to go look for them with a couple of caveats. Uh, you don't go into diverse contexts, like I said, and we're used to being in charge as white people. You go in as a learner. So if you find a church or an organization or something, like I said, you can read. You can support financially um, ministries that are working in the city. And... I think the other thing about it is you have to recognize that you can't grab someone and say, let's be best friends. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's happened to me that I've sort of felt yeah, sometimes yeah. like I'm running a dating service. Like people, people call and say, I, can you hook me up with a kid? Because uh, I got Friday nights free and I have 20 bucks. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's just an odd thing that you have to let the relationships happen naturally as opposed to seeing, to seeing you know, there's a mark, there's a target. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run over to the mailbox and grab D, and she's going to be my best friend. <laughs> do um, not do that. Do not do that. But, you know, open yourself up and I like I'm often the only white person in a room and I often don't notice it so I think it's um, you become comfortable being around people who are different from you and you just got to make the effort everybody isn't going to move into the city it would be too crowded if they did but everybody can find places mm. and um, and get to know people say Jesus went out of his way to go through Samaria mm, so he could meet right. that Samaritan woman yeah yeah do you have anything you want to add to that yeah I, I agree it, that just understanding um, that it, building relationship is is important, and as Sandra mentioned, you know it takes time, and and go, you know, no one wants to, you know, think that everyone has to immerse themselves in all this diverse community, but you know. I feel like you have to. I would. I would hate to have raised my children without them understanding that this is a. We live in a global world. You know, there's injustices happening all over the world, and um, I think a lot of it, a lot, in many places around the world, came from colonization and things that have have been deeply rooted in this country that have affected a lot of countries. Um, um, but. So there's a there's a lot of work to be done, and you can find it. You can find what you you know where you're. You're looking to be. for something to do. It's out there. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. You'll have to adjust your life. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Somewhat, uh, as you do with anything that's significant to jet on, but um, it's worth it. Okay. Finally, um, in this kind of sea of chaos, painful chaos that we find ourselves, what is it that do you si see signs of hope? What gives you encouragement in going forward? I'll, I'll, I'll start. You know, even though I, like I told you, I, I live my day, day by day, in in this moment, um, just trying to be peaceful. I do have hope, and it's been hard being hopeful um, over the years um, because of the history uh, of things that we completely know are wrong and are never righted. You know, and so I feel. A change right now and I'm, I'm sure some of you feel it too I have not seen such a diverse amount of people yeah. mm -hmm. on one page it's we're amazing. like I, 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 I feel it in the air I I you know I I'm not one that has been you know marching a lot and I protest a lot um, more silently with my families and I've I used to march a lot and I used to be a part of things but when I have been in these in, with groups um, in Minneapolis and talk to people and you s I have never seen so many people who don't look like me mm -hmm. and are advocating yeah. for justice. This is the first Amazing. time I've seen it and um, I mentioned uh, um, to um, 
too, Greg and Sandra, how about my mom? She, she was, we were watching the news and she said, oh my gosh, right after George Floyd was, she said, oh, she said, this is, there's going to be some changes happening because she said, white people are pissed off. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes. And not only when I say that, I say people are, they, they're tired of, of, of the, the wrongs and that aren't righted and we all have and I really have, I have a hope I have hope because I'm seeing that that more people um, are looking at this as a human issue and not just a not just a um, you know another black man was killed issue but a human issue this is not something that this is a buildup of many things George Floyd encompasses so much it's not just the death of George Floyd it's the deaths it's a hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So we're not looking at this George Floyd, and I think people are starting to want to know the truth. Mm -hmm. They're wanting, they're understanding the cause and effect of things. Our youth have made me hopeful. Mm -hmm. Young people are tired of being lied to. They want the truth, and they want to make a difference, and they want change. So I am hopeful. I am hopeful that when I, you know, hopefully I'll live to be 100 years old. I want to see some systematic changes. I want to see um, the change, the mindset change. I want, I want there to be my, my grandkids to grow up and not have same, some of the same worries that I have had in, in my parents. Um, I come from ancestors who went through so much. Mm -hmm so much pain and and they and and we're and, and to go through all of that and still be as strong as i am i can only imagine the next generation and generation after that wow. not having dealt with what they dealt with and the strength that they have and i have oh i have hope for that that's good i i find hope in those same places uh, with one addition um and this is counterintuitive but what hap has happening recently has brought out like from underneath a rock people who hold these views and have been silent about them i told you they were there she, she told me i was like aren't we we're doing good civil rights whatever and she was like they're under a rock years well ago. they all that was years, years ago. ago they all crawled out <laughs> and now we have these daily scenes of white people pulling guns on black people who accidentally pulled into their driveway etc 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 and the thing is you can't address something that you can't see right and it, white people it's easy to say we don't see it so there isn't racism and now we have to see it every freaking day we have to see it and so now we can address it and talk about it and bring truth to it and pray on it and um, keep marching mm -hmm. yeah the text that has grabbed me this whole season that we're in uh, has been Colossians 1 19 and 20 I don't know why it just but it, it's the passage that says that God is at work uh, by means of the cross the blood of the cross the sacrificial love of God he's at work uh, to reconcile everything in the cosmos uh, everything on earth and everything in, in the spiritual realm and so that's that's our kingdom true north and so whatever is moving in that direction we're supposed to you know Jesus only did what he saw his father doing so it, God's up to something it's moving in that direction I, I, the world's never going to be free of, of racism completely and free of violence completely and you know f full of love completely until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom mm -hmm. but we're like laying down the runway strip here That's and right. this is a I, I, I think a beautiful and very ugly period that we have to go through mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's a mustard seed it keeps on expanding mm -hmm. hey uh, so glad that that you all were part of this discussion uh, give a warm Woodland Hills thank you to <laughs> Dee and Sandra <laughs> listen to that the crowd's going they love you they love you <laughs>